good intentions, the strict rules, the rationalizations, and the overindulgence. This sequence relates not only to our inability to control our food intake, but to our difficulty in controlling sexual desires, spending habits, alcohol consumption, and you can add your own besetting weakness. How can we overcome these overpowering passions within? Let's join Dave Wurtzen, our study leader, and observe Jesus carefully as our temptation expert faces his first two intense satanic tests. God is your stomach. God is your genie. All compulsive, obsessive behaviors flow from the same point of problem deep within our personalities. And what the Holy Scripture does in our text today, if you turn to Matthew chapter 4, is the Holy Scripture gives us an insight into how to deal with these passions within. And I've just introduced the theme with the first kind of passion we have to deal with, which is the passion to meet our physical desires illegitimately, out of control, without obedience to the plan of God. How hungry do you think that you would be after not eating, after not eating for 40 days? I mean, I'm hungry after not eating for, you know, like one meal. How about you, the rest of you? Can you imagine going for 40 days? And, and I'm not sure, you know, it's very possible that maybe the Lord somehow alleviated the Lord's hunger during the 40 days, though I don't believe that's really what the text is implying. But it says that after the 40 days was completed, Jesus became very, very hungry. And so we're going to deal with this whole area of how did the Son of God deal with this unbelievable passion to want to eat. And the Satan is going to attack him and try to get him to fulfill that physical desire illegitimately. Let's look at it in Matthew chapter 4. We have the same account in Luke as well. And we'll center pretty much in Matthew. I think it's a little bit more complete account. And let's begin with verse 1 of Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. We ended the chapter, uh, chapter 3 with Jesus being baptized. We had the Holy Spirit descending upon him. And right off the bat, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. What bothers you about that? There's a little bit of tension. How could the Holy Spirit have led the Son of God into the wilderness to be tempted? That's a problem. Also, what do you think that the baptism of Jesus was like spiritually for Jesus? What kind of an experience spiritually do you think the Lord's baptism was? It would have been a mountaintop. You know, it would have been a real high point. Do you remember when some of you were baptized? And how many of you found that was kind of a real mountaintop experience spiritually, right? And we all have the idea that in our spiritual life, you know, we come to Jesus, we're born again, then we're baptized, and there's really this high point. We kind of expect it all to stay up there on the high point, don't we? Now, what happens? Right in the life of Christ, he's just been baptized. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And the very next verse we read, and he was led into the wilderness. Nobody wants to go into the wilderness. We want to go to Hawaii. We want to go to some nice places. We want to go to heaven, to be honest with you. I think there's a deep longing in all of our hearts as believers. We want it to be heaven. We don't want it to be a wilderness. And one of the things that you have to get through your mind 
is that the reality of living in this world is that it's not heaven yet. We're not home yet. A lot of this life is going to be the wilderness. A lot of this life is going to involve tests and temptations. Now let's deal with the other area. What about this business of the Holy Spirit leading the Son of God into the wilderness to be tempted? Is it a setup? You ever feel that maybe God's setting you up? Was it a setup for God to take his son into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil? Very intensely. What do you think about that? Now, there's a real conflict in this. Can somebody tell me a verse in James? Do you remember a verse in James that tells us that God won't tempt us? Turn to James chapter 1 and let's, let's get a little bit of a conflict going here between a couple portions of Scripture. James chapter 1, we read this. Verse 13. James chapter 1, verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Now that looks like a confusing thing because it says here that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Now what's, what's the conflict? It looks like James tells us that God is not going to tempt anyone with evil, and yet the very Son of God, right off the bat at the beginning of his ministry, he's led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now what's going on here? What's the difference between a test and a temptation? What do you think is the difference between a test and a temptation? The teacher's purpose in giving a test to a student is not to destroy the student. It's not to hurt the student. Even if they do poorly, the purpose of the test is not to deceive them or to, or to cause them to do evil. It's to expose what they don't know also with the intent that later on that they could do better, that they'd be able to get a, an accurate assessment of where they were. So the purpose of a test is to strengthen us, to build us. The purpose of a temptation is just the opposite. The person's intent in a temptation is to wipe the person out. It's to deceive them. It's to harm them. Now where it gets sticky is that as we live in this life, as we might go through a wilderness experience, the concrete reality, the objective experience that we're going through might be the same. Like it might be sickness, or it might be a financial disaster. It might be um, some very strong pull on us emotionally. In other words, the specific objective circumstance that we find in life might be one and the same. God's intent for us in that difficult circumstance is to test us, to make us strong, to build us up. Satan's temptation, Satan's desire is to deceive us, to con us, to destroy us. And one of the big hassles in life is that we are very much tempted to feel God has given me a raw deal. Have you ever felt in life God has given me a raw deal? God is, is against me. If God were good, 
he would not allow such and such a thing to happen. That's a very strong problem that, that we have in our personalities. We get angry with God. And we feel that He's giving us the wrong deal. Now, where do you think that idea is coming from? That idea in itself is a temptation. In fact, it's one of Satan's biggies. He does it from the very beginning. He says that God is not good. And that's one of the things that you're going to have to wrestle with because sometimes in life, you have to take it by faith that God is good. Sometimes you just have to say, well, God says that he's good. God says that he's loving. God says that it'll ultimately work this mess and bring about good. So I'll believe it. And that's a very strong test of faith. But I want you to realize as you go through life, you're going to face the same kind of pressure that Jesus faced. There's going to be some wilderness kind of experiences. I have them, you have them. The purpose of God in this problem, in this difficult wilderness experience, is to build us. It's to strengthen us. It's to draw us closer to himself. The purpose of Satan is to destroy us. And we have a unique combination. Jonathan asked me the other day about like the evil spirit that was sent from God to deceive Saul. That looks like a very confusing Old Testament idea. You have the same thing in Job, that Satan goes to the throne room of God. And Satan says, let me find out whether Job really does love you. And he doesn't love you. If you take away all the goodies from him, if you put him through some hard circumstances, he'll curse you because the only reason he praises you is because you're the sugar daddy in the sky. And God, in order to prove that he had relationship with a man, that he had a love, that he had a, a real living, vital relationship with a man that was not just built on economics, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. God allowed Satan to bring some very difficult circumstances into Job's life. Now, Satan's purpose in attacking Job was to destroy him, was to get him to curse God. God's purpose for Job was to demonstrate for all of time that man could love him, that man enjoyed relationship with him, that there was real love between God and man, and that that relationship was built upon grace, a free choice of love, not just, I'll do your thing, you'll give good things to me, so I'll give good things back. That's what the whole book of Job is about. And God even allowed the Son of God, His very own Son, to enter into the depths of hard times, real difficult circumstances. So that's what's going on. We probably have Satan, who accused the Son of God in the courtroom of heaven, challenged the Father, the father knows that his son can handle the test. So the father's purpose is for good. The tempter's purpose is for evil. And it's a very real conflict that's going on. Let's read a little bit further. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the son of God, Satan always throws in elements of doubt. If you're the son of God, you got to prove it. Same thing he did with Eve. Has God really said you can't eat of all the trees of the garden? The underlying thing is, if God is so good, why did he put restrictions on you? Same kind of thing going on here. If you're the son of God, and you got to prove it, an element of doubt. If you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, I want to ask you, how many of you have ever been taught from the time that you're a little kid, it is morally wrong to turn stones into bread? 
I mean, how many of you think that's a real moral crisis? Now, if I'd say lying, is it wrong to lie? Yeah, it's wrong to lie. Is it wrong to steal? Sure, but I've never read a commandment. Thou shalt not turn stones to bread. That's not in the ten. Okay? So I want you to see the subtleness of this temptation. It's a very important thing. If you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Now later on, Jesus is going to turn loaves into tons of bread. Okay? And this is a very important idea. There's nothing wrong with turning stones into bread. There's nothing wrong with eating bread. That's one of the problems of your anorexic. You're believing Satan's lie which is a very powerful one that we really need to help one another in because people do start to get the idea, this physical thing is evil. You see, there's a part of us that always wants to say the physical need, meeting the physical need, is evil. There's a whole group of people that say it's wrong to eat. It's wrong to eat certain kinds of food. It's wrong to eat certain kinds of diets. And they'll have a very rigid rules and regulations about what you eat and what you don't need. In fact, whole religions are built on that. The same thing is true with sexuality. The Christian church for centuries has had a hard time believing sex is a good thing. It needs to be in God's proper place. But sex is a very beautiful, holy thing. The church has had a hard time believing that. Because we want to say that the physical desire in itself is evil. Now, Paul says in the book of Romans that he came to the place in his life under the Spirit's inspiration that he realized that all physical desires were good. He said he didn't think there was anything that was material, that was physical, that was evil in itself. That's something to think about. You see, one of the problems that we want to do is we want to locate the evil in the thing. We want to locate the evil in turning the stones into bread. We want to locate the evil in a certain thing that we do from the outside that we put into our tank that destroys us and makes us evil. And that's not where evil is at all. Evil isn't in things. It's inside of us. It's much deeper than that. And that's what's going on in this temptation. There's nothing wrong with turning stones into bread. What was wrong with it? Why did Jesus have to respond like he did? Let's look at how Jesus responds. It is written. And that's the way you deal with temptation. You respond with the word of God against the word of Satan. It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Deuteronomy 8, 3. Now, I, this, I spoke on this passage, the very first message that I ever gave in Midlothian. I came up from Longview, Texas. I had grease and grime all over my body because my brother and I messed up my car the night before. And my brother just moved into an apartment, and he ran out of water. There was no water. But I came here, and we sat in a little circle of about 16 people, and we talked about this passage. And the Word of God is still living and powerful, because I remember raising the issue of what was this test. This is the very first kind of test, test number one you're going to have to face in your life. And the issue is, is God going to be your stomach? A German theologian Feuerbach, can you imagine a name like that, said this, God is your stomach. I would label over the American society, God is your stomach. You see, we don't just mean physical appetites like food. We mean sexual appetites, the drugs, alcohol, all the things, the, the passion for entertainment. What we're saying is that God is my physical passion. Now, did Jesus say that 
physical passion was wrong, that physical desires were wrong, that it was wrong to enjoy things physically? No. What did he say? He said, man shall not live for his stomach alone. That's what it means. Man shall not live by bread alone. Man shall not live just to meet his physical needs alone, but instead he needs to live by what? By every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now that is one of those statements that just shoots right over us. In fact, how many of you had your quiet time in Deuteronomy this past week? Anybody? Probably not. How many of you really get excited about Deuteronomy? I mean, you're reading it, and you come to your wife and say, man, I'm having my quiet time in Deuteronomy, and boy, I just tremendous insights into reality, into the Christian life, into what God desires for me? Probably not. But the Son of God did. The Son of God knew the book of Deuteronomy, and he didn't just have this because he was divine. Because it says that he grew. Remember, we learned when he was a child that he grew in stature with God and man. Jesus just internalized the book of Deuteronomy because it's the heartbeat of the Mosaic Covenant and of what God, in fact, the whole pattern of the Old Testament is laid out in the book of Deuteronomy. But Jesus had meditated deeply on Deuteronomy 8.3, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And what was wrong with Satan's request was not the objective reality of turning stones into bread. The problem was to do that apart from the will of God, to try to meet the Son of God's physical desires apart from the will of God. And I want you to think about that. You need to get it very clear in your mind. It's all right for me to meet my physical needs. But I need to have a higher priority. I don't just live to meet my physical appetites because I'm much more than just a stomach. I'm much more than just my sex glands. I'm much more than just my physical being. I am a spiritual being. I am a personal being. And I'm to live to have relationship with the invisible living God. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus isn't trying to be mean. He's not trying to put restrictions on us. He's just saying that man is much more than just his appetites. And that's one of the biggest things that we need to be living and need to be sharing with other people. Because you'll be destroyed and I'll be destroyed by just living for our physical appetites. By thinking that's all there is. You see, if you just build your life on what you eat... And what you buy, let me talk about an area that's totally different than this. Buying can become a passion that's just trying to meet physical needs. You're unhappy. You're depressed. You're down. Many times you're angry. And you held it all inside. So often, you know, I think guys can do this, but a lot of the girls tend to do this. You go out and get a fix. You go out and you buy. In fact, across the United States, there's lots of families that are up to their necks in debt because of this obsession. A wife goes in or a husband goes in, and they just buy. They buy things they know they can't afford. Why? Because they don't feel good. And they buy something, and as soon as they buy it, then they feel better. It's just exactly like a drug fix. It's a shopping fix. And I mention that because that's something you probably wouldn't think about as living for your physical desires alone. 
And that's tragic. Now, it's important not to go, oh, no, I'm such a bad person for doing that. You need to just stop and start to think about what's really going on inside of my life. We all need to face it. These are very, very strong desires we have. And this is a very intense temptation. And what we have here is Jesus facing it the most intensely. No one could have faced it harder. You know, a lot of people tell me, well, you know, sex just controls me. It just dominates me. And there's no way I can have victory over it. It's just too tough. Well, what I want to share with you, if you go without eating for 40 days and 40 nights, and you haven't eaten in that long, I want to share something with you. You'll have no trouble with your sex drive at all. You'll have a lot more trouble with your eating drive. Because our eating drive is much stronger than our sex drive. And I want you just to think about that. Jesus is facing the toughest, the hardest, the one that really pulls at us. And he's showing us how to beat it. And I think God had his son face it in the very intense area of hunger so that we would be able to look to the pioneer of our salvation and say the Son of God can teach us how to do it. And the way that he did it is that Jesus lived not just to meet his physical desires. He lived by the word of his father. He lived in relationship with his father. And what we need to help one another to do is to be honest about physical needs, to not think that they're evil in themselves so that we can enjoy them legitimately. We need to open ourselves up to living for deeper values, the values of really trusting the Lord. The first temptations that we have to deal with is the passion to meet our physical desires outside the plane of God. Now, some of you say, well, no, that's no big problem for me. I can handle that. No hassle at all. Don't have any trouble with physical desires. Probably nobody can really say that honestly, but some of you might say that. Because some of you are the super spiritual ones. And that's where test number two comes in. As we begin to live the Christian life, I think that this is not only a statement of the temptations that Jesus faced. I also think that it's kind of a, a paradigm of the kinds of temptations that Satan takes us through. One of the temptations that we as believers will have to deal with is test number one, God is my stomach. God is my passion. And we have to get our eyes on the real God and allow him to teach us to live for himself, for relationships, for things that are much deeper than just those physical passions. The second one is, God is my genie. Look what it says in the next verse. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, same question again, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command, quoting Psalm 91, 11, and 12. He will command his angels concerning you. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will strike your foot against the stone. If they quote Bible verses to you, you know they're from heaven, right? If they're religious, if they're good Sunday school people, if they're a pastor, you can be sure. Now, this one's a good one. The Son of God is up on the pinnacle of the temple. And this is a real big drop. It's still a big drop today. Probably it's on the corner that looks right down into the Kidron Valley and even with the Turkish old city wall, you can still get a feel 
for the kind of drop it was. Josephus says that this pinnacle of the temple, as you look down, it would make you kind of dizzy. If you're like me, when you get up on real heights, like as you're looking down Niagara Falls, or if you're up on the Empire State Building and, and you look down, or if you get like on a, a sable chasm way up in upstate New York and you look down several thousand feet, I want to jump. Do any of you have that? Anybody else have that urge? Few of you are weird like me, right? Good, all right. When I look down at a, at a height, it just draws me. Now, this is what, what Satan says is, if you're the son of God, jump. Because the Bible promises you that the angels of God, Psalm 91 is all about God's provision for the righteous. And certainly the son of God is righteous. And this is the climax of Psalm 91, that God will not let your foot strike against a stone. Now, what could be better? Is there anything wrong with jumping off pinnacles of the temple if you can fly? <laughs> See, once again, there's nothing really intrinsically evil. I mean, I've never read a command, thou shalt not jump off the pinnacle of the temple. You see, that, that's the subtlety of these things. When we already know who's giving this and the tempter has come, you know, then we say, oh, yeah, there's got to be something wrong because Satan is saying it. But when it comes in our own mind, when it comes in our own mind, it's not nearly as easy to discern. I want to just make it more modern. This is the God is your genie. This is the God is your genie temptation. First one, God is your stomach. Number two, God is your genie. I was in a hospital room just recently. The surgeon comes in and says, things are really bad. Not getting along very well at all. Some of the people that were there say, don't believe it. It's not so. Don't worry about it. God's going to raise them up. They're sure to get well. How do you know that? Because the word of God says that anything that we ask in his name, he will do it. So we have prayed in the Lord Jesus' name. We have named it. We have described health. We have described victory. We have described escape from this terrible situation. Therefore, we will have it. Right? Name it and claim it. Now, that's a very powerful theology. Across our land, that's a very powerful philosophy. And there's churches that are just gigantic by proclaiming that philosophy. Name it, claim it. Now, often we tease because the idea is that I name my Cadillac and I claim my Cadillac, but often we use it in the area of health. Now, I want to share something from the bottom of my heart. I believe with all my heart that Jesus can jump off the pinnacle of the temple and that God can keep him from hitting his foot against a stone. I believe that with all my heart. No big deal at all. Man alive, Jesus himself said, let there be light, and there was light. He said, let there be a sun, there was a sun. I mean, jumping off the pinnacle of the temple is small stuff. There's nothing to it. I mean, that's not even a big thing. So I don't have any, my faith, honestly, I really have no doubt that Jesus could have jumped off the pinnacle of the temple and blasted into outer space. In fact, I think he could have blasted beyond space and just gone home to be with his father. I want you to know from the bottom of my heart, I have no trouble at all believing Psalm 91. It's just no big deal for me. I mean, the Son of God jumping off buildings, no big deal. So what made it wrong?
Jesus said, how he responded to Satan. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. Now, Deuteronomy 6 is about the children of Israel in the wilderness. And they got grumpy. And they said, has God brought us out of, the, out of Egypt to destroy us? Has God brought us into the wilderness to starve us to death, to kill us with thirst? He needs to take care of us. He needs to meet our needs. And they tested him. In other words, they didn't say, we serve the God who delivered us through the Red Sea. We serve a God who brought the plagues in Egypt. We serve a God who we know will provide for us, will take care of us. Maybe we're a little bit hungry now. Maybe we're, you know, we'd really like to have some good solid meat or something like that. But we'll trust God for that. Instead of having that kind of an attitude, they tested him. And this is the God is your genie temptation. It's the jumping off the pinnacle of the temple. And often young believers get pulled into this kind of a situation very easily. Young believers start with the temptation of God is your stomach. And they get wiped out by passion. The second thing they get wiped out, usually when they start to get that area of their life together a little bit, then they get super spiritual and they get the idea, God will do what I tell him to do. And they never say it like that. But that's really what's going on. Because you see, what happens in the hospital room when you pray, Lord, raise them up, and they die. And then you pray that, Lord, raise them up again, bring them back to life again, and they don't come back to life. What do you do then? What do you do after the funeral? I'll tell you what people do across our land. You know what? They're angry. They're very, very angry with God. You know why? Because their relationship with God is built on, I don't know if you're there. I don't know if I can believe in you. I don't know if you'll fulfill your word. So I'll tell you what, I'll put you to the test. I'm going to put out a fleece. We'll put out a challenge. I'll jump off the pinnacle of the temple. And if you help me to land safe, then I'll know you're there. I know that you're God. And then I'll be able to believe in you. How many of you remember the Lord Jesus saying, the Jews look for a sign? Can anybody show me a place in the Bible where a person said, you do it, you do this particular thing, and then you'll know that I'm God, and it was a holy, righteous thing for them to do. Now, Gideon did it, and God was very gracious to Gideon. But God told Gideon to do what he was supposed to do at the very beginning, before he put any fleeces out or anything. It was Gideon's unbelief, and the Son of God wasn't Gideon. He was much more than that. He believed the word of his father. Jesus got very angry with the Pharisees when they asked for a sign. You know why? Because he's already given tons of signs. God will give his signs. The resurrection is the ultimate one. God will give you proof. God will give you credibility. He'll authenticate himself. But never on our terms. Now this is a hard one for me. It's a hard one for you. I started out saying that God will not tempt us, but he will 
God will not tempt us, but he will test us. You know what? I can't test him. God can test me, but I can't test him. That isn't fair. Is it? I don't think that's fair. My Americanism just rises up. My deep patriotism and all that I live for as American, that just isn't fair. If God tests me, then I ought to be able to test him. And I'm just telling you, objective reality, you can't test him. You know why? Because he's God. You know what? He's God no matter what he does. You see, God, I, I don't determine what God does. You see, when I pray and I say, God, I really want this person to be healed. I want them to be raised up. I believe you can do it. And he doesn't do it. You know what? He hasn't stopped being God. He's still God. He didn't disappear. Now, I can get angry about that. And I have in my life at times. It says, God... You just didn't come through. I'm not going to do what you tell me to do anymore because you don't do what I want you to do. And our relationship, man alive, I depend upon you and you just don't come through. And I get angry. In fact, I can go for long periods of time being angry. So can you. You know what God is saying? He's saying, Dave Wurtzman, I will not play that game with you. Because if I did that, the whole universe would go up and, and be incinerated because you don't know how to run the universe. You don't know how to run history. You don't know how to run life. You just don't know enough to tell me what to do. Now, I love to talk with you, and I love to hear what's on your heart. And many, many times, in fact, there's a lot of times when what you tell me, the Holy Spirit's moving through you, and you just pray right in touch with my heart. And I do exactly what you pray to me about. But other times, David, there's things that you just can't understand. And I just don't come through the way you wanted me to. But I was there. And I want you to depend upon me. In fact, I think when you're young in the Christian life, the Lord sometimes lets you jump off some buildings and catches you. But as you begin to grow, there's going to come a time when he says, that's not the game we're playing. You don't have a genie, you have a king. You don't have someone that you can manipulate. He's not like a, a doubting dad that if you gripe enough, he'll come through for you. He's not like that. He loves you too much for that. He wants to deal with you with truth and with compassion, with love. The temptation of the Son of God, there wasn't anything wrong with jumping off the building, but Satan was the one that was tempting him to do it. If Jesus would have jumped off the pinnacle of the temple, just like if he would have turned the stones into bread, he would have ceased to be our Messiah because there's no way that he would have identified with us in our human condition. How many of you can change stones into bread when you're hungry? Nobody. How many of you can jump off the pinnacle of the temple and not sweat it? We can't. Jesus came into this world not to be some great magician that could wow us with his supernatural power. Jesus doesn't use his supernatural power to meet his own needs. Have you ever analyzed that? He walks in the water. He feeds the 5,000. He raises the dead, but he does not use. When he hung on the cross, he didn't incinerate the cross 
and reveal his transfiguration glory, he hung there and died. And the beginning of that total identification with our human need and our human suffering began right here, and Satan was hitting it. Satan was telling him, come on, prove you're the son of God. Stop being a man. Go ahead and show us your divine glory. And the son of God said, no, because I'm going to live this life as a human being. And so Jesus faced the kind of a temptation that none of us will ever face, an intensity level that none of us could ever experience. But he said, don't put the Lord your God to the test. It says he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Jesus' entire life is a life of, I trust you, Father. I depend upon you, Father. It's a life of great emotional honesty. I don't want to go to the cross. If there's any other cup we can drink, let's drink that one. Total emotional honesty. But with his will, it's thy will be done. And that's the pathway the Lord wants us to walk down. One more temptation. And that's the temptation. God is your stomach. God is your genie. The third one is God is Satan. That's the bad one. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you if you will bow down and worship me. Away from me, Satan, Jesus said to him, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. Deuteronomy 6.13. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. You know, it's been a, a theme in great literature down through the centuries. It's the promise of the evil one to give you what you want if you'll only sell your soul to him. Mephistopheles and Faust, it's all about that kind of, of conflict that takes place. Now, what I want you to see here is that Satan promised Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. What is the Father's will for the Son? What is the Father's will for you? I want you to be honest with me. How many of you would like to have, have a lot of influence You'd like to have a lot of prestige. You'd like to have power. Now, some of you maybe were beaten down so much when you were kids, you know, you say, oh, no, I don't really want that. So maybe you're struggling with the God as your genie, God as your stomach. But deep in the human heart, there's a hunger to want to have influence, to want to have power. I want to share something with you. That is a holy gift. That shows that you're made in the image of God. My two colleagues don't build big skyscrapers in Dallas. They've never even asked me about that. They just eat their dog food, run around the backyard. If you give them enough water, really content. They need a pat in the head. But they're not building buildings and governing in Washington and everything. Why not? They don't care about power. But every one of you do. Mankind does. You know why? We were built for it. It says right in the very first chapter of the Bible, let us make man and let them rule over all of creation. Do you realize that we were born, we were made to rule? But Genesis chapter 3 messes it all up. We are part of a race that chose to rule outside the plan of God, the Father. We chose to rule arrogantly and independently. We are like a prodigal son that says, Dad, get lost. 
give me the inheritance and I'll do what I want to with it. And that's where all the suffering and death and evil, one of the things we started out with, that's the reason there is a wilderness. There wasn't a wilderness in the Garden of Eden. And there's not going to be a wilderness in that new eternal kingdom. 